1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex.
0: Good morning, Kathy. How, How are, you? are you?
1: Oh, I'm oh, good. How are you doing?
2: Not too bad. Thanks. Pretty good. I'm good. Uh, doing doing quite well today. Thanks.
1: Very good. Very good. You had your Wheaties, so we're all ready to go. I know you have a busy day. Always a busy yes. day for you. Always a busy yes, day. Yes,
0: but uh, I'm happy to be here.
1: Excellent. Today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three sites and do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions you'd like to ask us about any shows or our guest today, Professor Adams. Uh, We are always happy to hear from you and please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of your uh, favorite podcast platforms or you can find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website which is radiomaria.ca and on my website which is kathybsa.com so we are taping now Alex we are mid-August um, so this the show will be airing sometime September early October so I wanted to talk to um, talk to the power of breathing this is something I've really become um, quite in tuned with I've been doing a bit of research on it and um, I've read a book and we'll hear about that, that book and that author in a, in a subsequent show but uh, it really got me thinking about the power of breath. And uh, this book, along with some research I've done, has really shown me, you know, we really take for granted this, this process that we do over 20,000 times per day, right? Sometimes we think of our breathing, mm-hmm. but most times we don't think of our breathing at all. It's just automatic for us. And as we are... Well, as we are approaching at this particular moment, starting back to school and um, by the time the show airs, it will be, kids will be in school, high school, college, even uh, the younger children will be in school. I propose it uh, is proposing a little bit more anxiety for people. This go-around, we are, you know, reigniting the school system. And for parents and kids, it's, it can be a little bit more stressful this year because of the situations and the protocols in place. So I came across two studies pertaining to students directly about how they can use their breath to improve their mental health and test scores. So I thought I'd pass this along. Now, these are specific to students, really, these two tests or these two mm-hmm. studies. But the power of breath uh, permeates everything. And it is applicable, especially the the technique that I will talk to you about at the end of this, um, to all of us. But these two particular studies I want to mention really does highlight the the potential for our breath to positively affect our mental health. Now, our breath is essential for a a myriad of physiological processes, but understanding just a little bit how our breath can impact our outlook and our stress levels, I think is an extremely important thing to to learn. So this first study was done um, by researchers at Yale University who used a program called the Sky Campus Happiness Program as part of their study. And this program was developed by the Art of Living Foundation, and it uses a system of meditation and breath work to decrease stress and improve clarity of mind for university and college students with the hopes that they can live uh, and thrive in their environment. And this, this program as it was studied by Yale University, the the hoped for benefits of this program were actually supported by the study. So this study found that as students followed this Sky program and learned to work with their breath through different techniques, including yoga, um, the study found that the students showed marked improvement in the area of stress reduction in depression, mindfulness, the increased mindfulness, uh, it increased positive emotion and positive social connections, and was also overall just very beneficial for mental health. Now, the incidences of mental health issues in, in uh, college and university students and in high school students, has oh, and students across, and people in general, I guess, but in these particular areas, has really skyrocketed. So a technique that could allow students to learn and understand and work with their breath to improve their mental health is profound as far as I'm concerned. So I thought that was a very meaningful study. And in the second study, um, it was called the Effectiveness of Daily Mindful Breathing Practices on Test Anxiety of Students. And this one didn't specifically go into the techniques that they were using, but it, the results showed that when students were taught a type of mindful breathing practice, that it really did help them to reduce test anxiety, and it also helped to increase positive thoughts. So you know, it, you know, you sit down in yeah. a test, and automatically, you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't study yeah. enough. Oh my goodness, yeah. I always fail tests. These breathing techniques seem to help not only test results, but positive outlook as well. Well,
2: well, the thing is, breathing provides oxygen to the brain, which inevitably helps you to process and think things through a
1: little bit better. So when you're doing a test, you're able to think more clearer hundred percent. And I've even seen, you know, I've seen on TV and, um, and other articles where they're teaching young, young children, kindergarten children to sit and be calm for five minutes, to breathe. If we could manifest this in our daily lives as, you know, as people in general, but if, if children can be taught this at a young, imagine how profound it would be as they're going through the schooling system. You know, the testing system is, brings anxiety for a lot of people, for most people, but it can be profound for some. So imagine as, as a young kindergartner, three, four or five, six year old who's taught, you know, five minutes out of the day to breathe, to relax, to, you know, I, I think it's, I think this is profound. So, you know, I don't I didn't give specifics and nor did the study give specifics on breathing techniques, but there is one that I use that I love and it was developed by Dr. Wheel and it's the 478. I might have talked about this already, but it's a very simple technique. If you if you Google breathing techniques, there are a number of them. This one I found really great, even for going to sleep, and it's breathing in for four, holding that breath for seven seconds and breathing out for eight seconds, and it just brings peace. So uh, hopefully, you know, uh, someone or some of you can take that, educate your children, use it yourself in practice, but the power of breath is profound, and uh, it's something that we really can, can take control of and, 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 and mitigate stress and really manipulate our breath for our better health.
2: That's all very interesting. Thank you. It,
1: it really is. You're very welcome. On to today's show. Our guest is Dr. James Adams, and he is a PhD and is the director of the Autism Asperger's Research Program at Arizona State University. His research focuses on the medical causes of autism and how to treat and prevent it, including the areas of nutrition, which vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, oxidative stress, gut problems, gut bacteria, toxic metals, and seizures. He has published over 150 peer-reviewed scientific articles, including over 40 related to autism. He is also the president of the Autism Society of Greater Phoenix, the president of the Autism Nutrition Research Center, the co-leader of the Scientific Advisory Committee of the Autism Research Institute and a chair of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Neurological Health Foundation. And he has an adult daughter with autism. Great interview, great guest, some wonderful research coming your way. Uh, Some of the learning points will be key prenatal nutrients that moms should be aware of to mitigate the chances of having an autistic child.
0: Mm-hmm. what
1: is microbiota transplant and how effective is microbiota transplant to the prevention of autism this is uh, a wonderful interview some very forward-thinking research and i hope that you stay tuned with us as we talk to professor adams everybody will be back in a few minutes
0: I'll continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi.
1: Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, the show is being taped today, but please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And do email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions about this show or anything in general. We love to hear from you. Professor Adams, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
3: Thanks for having me, Kathy.
1: It's a really interesting topic. It's something that's a little bit near and dear to my heart um, because my daughter works in the field. Uh, she is working with autistic children. So any any time that um, research like yours comes up or professionals in this field comes up, I take a little bit more of an interest in it um, because of that. You know, I hear stories from her. She's continually doing her research. She's working on her master's. And... Um, you know, I hear the stories, so it, it is something that's so challenging for many people. You have a daughter that has autism. We read in the bio. Um, is uh, I'm assuming this is what pushed you in the, the direction of your research?
3: Absolutely.
1: And when, when you started with this, you know, how old is your daughter now?
3: Uh, my daughter's now 28.
1: She's 28. So was autism you know, again, I'm not in the immediate circle, but was it as um, pronounced back then? Or was it as well known to be? um, Yeah, I'm trying to say this the proper because we've changed to the spectrum as opposed was your daughter diagnosed with autism? Or was she put on the spectrum? Let's start in that way.
3: Sure. So when my daughter was uh, very young at age two, she wasn't um, speaking and she wasn't even responding to her name. So we suspected major uh, hearing issues or other problems. And at age two and a half, she was uh, diagnosed of um, high risk of autism. We did a follow-up evaluation of a few months later, and she was diagnosed with severe autism and intellectual disability.
1: And where were you in your professional career at that point?
3: I was in a very different place. I was an engineering professor at University of Illinois. Um, I had almost no knowledge of autism except uh, from the show, from the movie Rain Man. Uh, my wife was a neonatal nurse, but again, um, we noticed our daughter seemed to be a little slow developing, uh, but we didn't have major concerns at the time um, until at age two, and then we had that diagnosis, which was just devastating. We were told that it was really just a matter of time until we'd have to institutionalize her, that uh, they knew nothing about treatments. The uh, the team of physicians who diagnosed her said, uh, basically go to the local autism society for information because we can't help you. It was uh, very, very frustrating.
1: How did you start your research then? What, what, What path did you take? Or I'm sure those paths went in many directions at the start.
3: Yeah, so my uh, research, I was dragged into by my wife. Um, (laughs) After that diagnosis, we just decided that we would love our daughter and do as much as we could to try to help her. She went to a number of uh, educational conferences and learned about the importance of nutrition. And I poo-pooed this. I said, how in the world could nutrition be a factor in autism? How could vitamins and minerals be important? We've known about them for 100 years. How could it be possible that there are nutritional deficiencies. But she twisted my arm, forced me to to attend one of these sessions, and I realized very quickly it was amazing how widespread nutritional deficiencies were in the US. The research on it was actually very strong. And so with that, we began um, treating our daughter. And I began deciding that because there was almost no research on the causes of autism, almost no understanding, on the causes of autism and how to treat it, We, des- I decided to go ahead and uh, do a clinical trial of uh, vitamin mineral supplements uh, for children with autism and surprisingly found some very good results.
1: Okay, so I guess the question that I was trying to get out of my mouth before was, um, are there now more cases of autism? You know, you've come along 28 years, or now has the spectrum put more kids with this diagnosis of autism. Have things improved or gotten worse?
3: Yeah, so the, di- the rate of autism has climbed incredibly. Uh, 40 years ago, the rates were of order a few per 10,000. Now it's of order one in 54. So roughly 2% of children in the US are now receive a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder. So the, the, it is now the most common developmental disability. Um, It's just exploded in terms of incidents.
1: From your research, can you get a handle on why this is? Is it all attributed, in your opinion, to nutritional deficiencies?
3: We believe that's a part of it, certainly not the only part. We know that autism is due to a combination of genetics and environment, but our genetics haven't changed so much. So it seems that there's, for the most part, genetic Uh, vulnerabilities, which may increase nutritional needs or other needs or make you more vulnerable to factors in the environment. But some of the most exciting research lately, uh, some of the work we did very early on showed that certain key vitamins, special forms of folic acid, were important for treating children with autism. And there are now um, over 10 studies showing that we can reduce the rates of autism by about 40%. If women simply start taking a prenatal with folic acid uh, during the first month or two of pregnancy, problem is most women wait until they know they're pregnant to take a prenatal. Half of pregnancies are unplanned, and by that time, it seems to be it seems that the prenatal and folic acid have very little benefit for reducing the risk of autism.
1: That's very interesting. So some uh, uh, pa- parents or to be parents, women planning to get pregnant, would you suggest supplementing with this before they get pregnant and then continuing on?
3: Yes, today about 30% of women started prenatal prior to pregnancy and the general medical community would strongly recommend that women take a prenatal uh, starting several months prior to pregnancy because those first couple months of pregnancy are especially important. Critical stages of brain development related not just to autism but many other uh, birth defects and, and other problems. And so it seems very important to help the woman have a very good nutrition.
1: So, would you say that most autism is linked to a developmental issue, or can certain factors after birth contribute to diagnosis of autism? Is it all in the genes and then epigenetic forces are bringing it to the surface?
3: Um, it's complicated. That we know that if we are, if these prenatal supplements are given in the first couple months of life, we know that can greatly reduce the risk of autism, not eliminate it. About five to ten percent of cases of autism are mostly due to a single gene disorder um, that greatly increases your risk of autism, uh, but about 90 to 95 percent of cases aren't due to a single gene. It's due to a combination of perhaps hundreds of genes and many environmental factors. And nutritional deficiencies seem to be one of the important factors. And surprisingly, gut bacteria seem to be important as well.
1: Um, I have read in some research that parents who have a child with autism are more likely to have a second or third child with autism? Is that necessarily the case, would you say? Is that in fact true?
3: That's, that's extremely true. That if you have one child with autism, there's about an 18% chance that your future children will also develop autism. So families need to know that if they have one child with autism, there's a much higher risk, dramatically higher risk that future children will have autism. I'm not guaranteed. It's about 18%, but also a high risk of just general speech delays and other problems. Um, So that is a a major concern.
1: And is this due to that gene, the particular gene you're speaking of?
3: Um, No, there are. That could be part of the reason. But in general, 90% of cases of autism seem to involve a complex array of hundreds of genes. So we don't know the full reason. Um, But we know that it's partly due to genetic contributions, partly due to um, environmental factors, including toxic metals, toxic chemicals. Those have been uh, linked. Uh, Pesticides, excessive pesticide use is of concern. And also um, nutrition, as I mentioned, seems to be very important.
1: Are these exposures, the the environmental exposures, um, prenatal? Are they uh, within the mom or are they um, after
3: birth? There's some of both. Um, And so we still have a lot to learn about this. Um, Some children with autism, about a quarter, seem to be developing normally up to about age two to three. And then uh, have a severe regression, a plateau or severe regression around that point. Um, And so that makes it complicated. There's a lot of debate were there already underlying factors, perhaps prenatal factors that contributed to that, or were there later factors? And so autism is due to an array of many different conditions, and so some of them are genetic, mostly genetic, some are mostly environmental, many are, are some of both. And some of them seem to be critical in early pregnancy, some seem to be uh, a factor later on.
1: Later on in the pregnancy?
3: Later on in the pregnancy. So, another major risk factor during pregnancy is low iron. About 10% of women start their pregnancy with low iron, and iron needs go up greatly during pregnancy, especially the second half of pregnancy. And so, uh, roughly 40% of women develop low iron during their pregnancy because they need the iron for all the new blood created for the baby and the placenta. And if you have low iron, then that roughly doubles your risk of having a child with autism. And it's very simple. The iron is needed to carry oxygen to the blood. So women who have low iron are not getting enough um, oxygen for their body. So they're more fatigued and they're not getting enough for the infant. And the part of the brain, the part of the body that needs the most oxygen is the brain. So low iron is a leading cause of learning disabilities in the U.S and also seems to be a risk factor for autism.
1: Is this well noted in the medical system?
3: No. There's only been one study shown uh, of this link of low iron. It hasn't generally been researched, um, but we know that in general, low iron is one of the leading causes of learning disabilities uh, in the US. And it's so sad because it is so totally treatable. The problem is most prenatals don't give enough iron in them. And so we believe, we recommend that every woman have their iron level tested before pregnancy because about at least 10% have full-blown iron anemia. And we recommend they retest it uh, roughly halfway into their pregnancy because that's when iron needs go uh, increase. Again, it's shocking. 40% of pregnancies involve low iron. And the women just need to be taking more iron supplements or iron-containing foods. Um, And they just, the typical prenatals often do not have enough iron for many women. So this is a totally preventable condition.
1: Yeah. So what is there a level of iron that you recommend? I know this is going to be a question that's going to filter through. Is there a, a, a key level of iron that you're recommending daily or is that is it um, dependent on the blood work?
3: Um, the best thing to do is to measure the level in the blood because different women need different amounts. Um, most prenatals have of order 30 milligrams of iron and yet The research seems to show that you probably need that 60 is better. And some women, especially later in the pregnancy, so 30 may be enough early on, but we recommend going up to 60 about halfway through. But some women may may need 100, 120, and some studies even 180 milligrams. So some women just need more, um, especially if they already have a history of, a uh, low iron, which many do. Women need a lot more iron than men because of their monthly blood loss through the menstrual cycle.
1: What blood level uh, measurement are you targeting, or are you suggesting um, for
3: women? Measurements of iron that are done, uh, ferritin panels and others. Physicians are very understand iron deficiency very well and how to test for it. The sad reality is that they don't test for it during pregnancy in mo- many cases. And yet, this is so common in women in the U.S. and women worldwide. Well,
1: okay. So, what level of folic acid are you recommending? And because most women do defer to a multivitamin prenatal. Um, what level of folic acid? I know you can't like generally, but it, it, above yeah. what the,
3: the standard recommendation is of order. 400 to 600 micrograms of folic acid. Um, So we've actually researched, we were um, researched over 300 prenatals in the US and we're going to be coming out with a rating of them. Um, Some are much better than others, but basically um, about 60 prenatals sold in the US are so-called prescription prenatals. They have a a much higher amount of folic acid and too much seems to be a problem actually Mm -hmm. that um, when you go above about 500 micrograms of folic acid, you seem to be greatly increasing the risk of serious food allergies in the infant. This research has only come out in the last few years, but you're probably aware that the rate of food allergies, for example, peanut allergies that can be life-threatening, has greatly increased in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it seems that one of the major reasons is taking too much folic acid uh, during pregnancy. So you need to take some. you need to be careful not to take too much unless you have a special medical need for it, like a prior history of a child with spina bifida, which is what folic acid is given to to prevent. So folic acid is the key nutrient in prenatals or is generally viewed as the key nutrient in prenatals. Um, but now we, we're beginning to understand that too much is a problem.
1: What other nutrients are, so these are the two key ones, are there other nutrients that you are are looking at as well?
3: Every vitamin, every mineral, by definition, is essential for human health. And so calcium, magnesium, vitamin B12, all of them, every one of them is important. And so the problem is that most women take a prenatal that is just a single capsule, And you can't put even enough calcium into a single capsule, let alone all the other key vitamins and minerals. So manufacturers compromise and put in much less than is needed because they can say this is a prenatal. So there's 300 prenatals on the market in the U.S., varying widely in quality from 10% to 85% of our recommendations. Um, and some will just have only folic acid and iron, and that's it, um, and, so, and some have a complete range. So you just, probably need about six to seven uh, capsules or tablets to get in all the levels of vitamins and minerals that are needed to help supplement a healthy diet.
1: And diet alone won't do it. Probably within the, the, the pregnancy phase, no.
3: Diet could if you were really exceptional eating a very balanced diet, high in vegetables, high in uh, having some fruit, lots of protein. But iron, getting enough iron is a real challenge, and just one of many.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Um, You're doing some extremely interesting work on the gut microbiome and its association with autism, and we're going to talk about – Fetal transplant, this is something that I learned about five years ago and it was so out there and weird and now it's almost becoming mainstream and your research is doing a whole bunch to put this into people's minds. I want to take a quick break and I'd like to spend uh, the next half of the show talking about this outstanding research that you're doing. So everybody, we will be back in one minute.
2: See anymore Give me a vision That you could move This heart To be set apart I don't need to Recognize the man In the mirror And I don't want to trade Your plan for something Familiar I can't waste a day I can't stay The same I wanna be different, I wanna be changed, till all of me is gone, and all that remains is a fire so bright, the whole world can see, that there's something different, so come and be different, And I don't want to spend my life stuck in a pattern. And I don't want to gain this world but lose. The whole world gets saved, but there's something different. So come and be different. I just wanna be different. So could you be different
0: in me? You are listening to the Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show. Email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody.
1: We're having a conversation here with Professor Adams, and we're going to spend the next half of the show on some outstanding research that he's doing. Before we get into the specifics of the research, can you set us up with why you are doing this research and why the microbiome has caught your attention in the field of autism?
3: Yeah, so we're very interested in the microbiome for a number of reasons. One is that about 30 to 50% of children with autism have chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea or alternate between the two. They've had these conditions for years or even decades. It's very resistant to standard treatment, and so it's a big problem on their nutritional intake. And it's a big problem on their quality of life. Imagine how uncomfortable you are if you haven't had a bowel movement for a week. And some of these kids get very bloated, very constipated. And uh, some even have to be taken to the ER for an emergency evacuation of their bowels. And so it's a a big problem. Um, When a child's still in diapers at age 16 because they have chronic diarrhea, that's a big quality of life problem. And then we also found out that there was a very strong correlation, that the children who had worse GI problems also had worse autism symptoms. And so that was some of what um, led us into this early work. And then there was a very exciting study done in 2000 where they gave a special antibiotic to children with autism who had these chronic gut problems. The special antibiotic is not absorbed into the rest of the body. It only acts in the gut and goes especially after certain bad bacteria in the gut. And strikingly, it resolved those GI problems within a few weeks, but really surprisingly, it started improving the children's autism symptoms. Their language, their behavior began getting much better. So they treated them for an unusually long time, eight weeks. But when they stopped treatment, it was very sad. The GI benefits and the autism benefits disappeared Within a few weeks. So it seems that the bad bacteria that have been killed off just regrew and they were back to where they had been. So that was what set the stage for our research.
1: Can you lead us into what your research uh, has found and treatment paths?
3: Yeah. So one of the striking findings from our research is we collaborated with a group at Caltech where we took uh, stool samples from children with autism. They were, um, and from typical children, they were put into pregnant rats. And when the rats gave birth, the children, the rats that had um, whose mothers had been inoculated with these bad bacteria uh, from children with autism, those rats developed autism. Whereas the rats were inoculated with normal bacteria from normal children, they developed normally. So this suggests that bad bacteria. Could be linked to causing autism, and so that's a big concern. Um, and so it's just again one of many factors. It doesn't prove it. It's an animal model, but it's just more evidence that this connection is strong. So we started looking at fecal transplant because there have been a number of probiotic studies, and standard probiotics weren't very helpful. Standard probiotics are bacteria that are grown in milk, and they um, may have some minor benefits in humans, but humans have about a thousand different species of bacteria in their gut. And most of these are helpful. And our studies found that kids with autism were missing hundreds of their normal gut bacteria. So, um, and the ones that are in probiotics just weren't the right ones and it just didn't nearly have enough. So a collaborator of ours in a gastroenterologist in Australia treated nine children with autism with microbiota transplant, taking gut bacteria from healthy uh, people, putting it into the kids with autism. And he found over the course of several months, their GI problems improved and surprisingly their language improved as well. And so that was what led us to doing a clinical trial for uh, kids with autism. So we asked the FDA for permission to run this special study. Up to that point, uh, fecal transplant had already been widely used for treating a nasty condition called C. difficile or clostridium difficile infections. These kind of infections are very common in the U.S. They affect about a half million people a year. They kill 29,000 Americans a year, This is a huge problem, uh, killing almost as many people as car accidents and this nasty, life-threatening bacteria in the gut causes explosive diarrhea. It can be treated with antibiotics, but it often comes back again and again and weakens you until you die. Um, And amazingly, one dose of fecal transplant, just taking gut bacteria or even raw stool from a healthy person, putting it into the uh, gut of a person with C. diff generally Cures them. One dose, one time, cures them of this life threatening C. diff within two to three days. So now hundreds of hospitals around the country are using uh, fecal transplant to treat C. diff, and they're also experimenting with using it for treating other conditions. So that's why we decided to use it for trying to treat children with autism. But we knew from our study, the studies in Australia. But unlike with C. diff, where just one dose, one time was enough, we knew we had to treat them every day for many weeks. That The physician in Australia found that kids with autism were dramatically harder to treat than um, typical kids. We used an antibiotic to kill off bad bacteria, and then we um, did a bowel cleanse to remove any remaining bacteria, and then we gave them healthy – we gave them bacteria from very healthy donors did it every day for seven to eight weeks and slowly gradually their GI symptoms improved there's about an 80% reduction in um, chronic constipation chronic diarrhea that they'd had for years and it cleared within a few weeks and the autism symptoms began improving as well took a little bit longer but at the end of our study was about a 25% reduction in autism symptoms which is thrilling I mean this is just amazing that by treating the gut, we could really help with the autism symptoms.
1: I have two questions that's popped out of here. Now, we're talking about a huge dysbiosis issue. So when you are propagating or when you're doing the fecal transplants, are these children able to continually, after the, the eight weeks, to propagate these bacteria? Or are they needing to have this um, topped up, basically, as they move on?
3: So that was the critical question that uh, antibiotics today I mentioned, they lost all the benefits within a few weeks of stopping treating. So what we did is we, after the antibiotic, we then replanted with all these beneficial bacteria and we rechecked at eight weeks and the, and all the GI symptoms, all the autism symptoms remained. Uh, there was no loss of benefit. So that was incredibly exciting. So we published that paper, received a lot of attention from it. And we thought we were done. But then a year later, several different parents came up to me and said, Professor Adams, my son is doing better than ever. And by the time I heard this the third time, I said, wow, we need to do a follow-up study. So we did a follow-up study two years after treatment had stopped. And family after family reported their child had just slowly gradually continue to learn more language, better behavior, better social skills. They just seem to slowly, gradually continue to improve. So our expert autism evaluator evaluated them, and instead of a 25% improvement at the end of study, now there was about a 47% reduction in severity of symptoms, which is huge. It was amazing. This is an open-label study. There's some placebo effect. But at the start of our study, 80% of the kids were diagnosed with severe autism. By the two-year follow-up, only less than 20% had severe autism. About 40% had mild to moderate autism. And about 45% were below the cutoff for autism. They still had symptoms, but they no longer even met the cutoff for mild autism. So just- outstanding. Just amazing. And we also saw huge changes in the gut bacteria. And so at the start of the study, they were missing hundreds of species of gut bacteria. By the end of treatment, they had a normal amount of gut bacteria. Two years later, they had better gut bacteria than the typical child. They had a higher diversity of species. And so, and that was because we selected donors who were not general donors, but donors who were the top few percent of the very healthiest people out there so we think they helped get them to very healthy gut bacteria
1: two things that pop up but to my mind you know my studies in in gut bacteria microbiome most of the research has said that by the age of two we're done that's your fingerprint that's your microbiome and uh, you cultivate it and do the best you can with it this seems to be pointing in the direction that That's not, in fact, true. I mean, I know that this was done, these were extreme cases, and you repopulated, but it does seem to lead to the idea that you can change the footprint of your microbiome. Is that correct?
3: Yes, you you absolutely can. You're right that by the age of two, your microbiome, once you begin eating solid foods, your microbiome is going to probably stay pretty similar for the rest of your life, unless you have a major multiple rounds of antibiotics that can have a big effect. Um, typical probiotics only help temporarily. Within a week of stopping of taking them, they'll generally disappear. Um, one of the, Some of the major clues we discovered in our study is that all of the children in our study had had these GI problems since infancy. And we found out that their mothers have had lower intake of fiber. And fiber in your vegetables and fruit is extremely important for gut health. That most Americans, it's rec- the recommendations uh, for most Americans to get enough fiber are not met in the U.S. Women get only about half the amount of recommended fiber. Fiber is needed for your gut bacteria to make certain nutrients, especially butyrate, that's the major food for the cells lining your colon. So most people in the U.S. not getting enough fiber, they're not getting enough butyrate, and their cells that line their colon are literally starving for the nutrient to provide 60 to 70 percent of the nutrition for their cells. So that's one key factor. And the other key factor we found is kids with autism um, had much higher rates of antibiotics the first few years of life. So that really uh, damaged their microbiome they might have inherited from their mother. because You inherit most of your microbiome from your mother uh, during birth. And the other major factor is um, breastfeeding. Children with autism, nursed much shorter period of time, and mother's milk has a key nutrient in it, a special sugar that helps promote the growth of one type of bacteria called infant infantis, named after the infant. And that out competes almost all the other bacteria and sets the stage for a healthy initial gut bacteria. But if you're born by C-section, or if you take a lot of antibiotics, or you don't nurse long enough, then that can really disrupt your initial gut bacteria. So that you're right that the initial gut bacteria, the first two years of life, were very important. And we found multiple reasons why the kids with autism had abnormal gut bacteria at the start of their life.
1: So two questions I wanna get out here for sure. Was there a maintenance uh, program that these children were put on after they had the fecal transplant?
3: No, um, because it was a first study ever done for children with autism, we did not put them on a maintenance program. Most of them did not need it, but we had one sad case who at the end of our study, uh, they uh, developed a strep throat, so they took antibiotics, and they lost all the GI benefits from the study and the autism benefits did not continue to improve. So just um, that person would have benefited from a booster dose, but we weren't allowed to give it because it's still an investigational uh, treatment.
1: Have you done any brain imaging in correlation to your studies?
3: We haven't done any brain imaging, but we have uh, measured blood levels of um, over 600 chemicals in the blood, from that, we developed a diagnostic test with about 95% accuracy. We can see if this blood samples from a child with autism or from a typical child. Um, it's a, a pilot uh, test, so we haven't fully developed it yet. But after this treatment, we found that these uh, chemicals in the blood were now much more similar to typical children. And so now they were, uh, so. It was very clear that by changing the bacteria in the gut, we had made major changes in the uh, chemicals in the blood, which we think are very important to uh, brain and body health.
1: Will there be a time in the near future where fecal transplants are going to be available um, for people who have children with autism and want to give this therapy a try?
3: We hope so. So we did a phase one study and the FDA awarded us fast track status. But we still have to do phase two studies, which are going on right now. So we're currently conducting randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies for children and for adults with autism. If those studies are successful, we'll move on to phase three studies, basically larger studies, 10 to 20 sites around the country, more to 500 people. And if those studies are successful, then we can finally ask the FDA to approve it and make it um, available for children with autism. But right now it's not available.
1: Okay. Now you also are involved in the comprehensive nutritional intervention therapy or therapies for children. That, that's Sorry, go ahead.
3: That's right. Um, so we've developed a vitamin mineral supplement for children with autism. We found in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, it had a number of good benefits. And then we did a follow-on study where we added five other key nutrients, so uh, essential fatty acids, a healthy diet, um, uh, digestive enzymes, and other things. And over the course of 12 months, we found that the group that was not treated had no change in IQ. The group that was treated had a 7-point gain in IQ, which is huge. Mm -hmm. The group that was not treated over 12 months had four months gain in development. So they're making progress, but slower than their peers. The group that was treated had gained 18 months of development. They began catching up to their peers. So uh, again, it seems that um, good nutrition is very important. Part of the link is that when you have abnormal gut bacteria, gut bacteria make some key vitamins for your body such as vitamin K and biotin. And you get a lot of those from your gut bacteria. And it seems that kids with autism are missing some of those healthy gut bacteria that they need to make vitamins for their body.
1: Can you see in the future a specific probiotic aimed at populating or supplementing children with autism?
3: Yes. We, we um, are very interested in one particular bacteria called Prevotella, We found it was extremely low in kids with autism. In people on really healthy, um, high-fiber diets, half their gut bacteria is Prevotella. In your typical American, it's less than 1%. And in kids with autism, it's 10 times lower. And after microbiota transplant, it went up about 200-fold. So we think this is a very important probiotic, but we just um, don't have the resources to uh, get it commercially developed yet.
1: Is there, uh, within your scope or within your practice, a therapy that you are able to offer parents to help their children, a nutritional therapy or a, a link to a therapy that, that you know that has been beneficial, like as we were talking about? Is this open to everybody?
3: Yeah. So the vitamin mineral supplement that we developed and we've used in three studies, we created a nonprofit. And now offer that uh, through our nonprofit. I don't get any royalties from it, Um, but we um, make it available so that we families can use the supplement that we uh, developed from our research studies. And also on that, um, we now have a protocol that's similar to that 12-month study we just talked about. We say start with the vitamin mineral supplement, move on to uh, fish oil for omega-3 fatty acids, move on to some other key nutrients and diets. We have a whole regimen laid out very clearly for families. They can just go to our website um, to look it up and do it if they want.
1: What's the website that I can offer them?
3: www.autism, and then N for nutrition, R for research, C for center.org
1: Okay, I'll be sure to put that on the bottom of the link there for the podcast. Fascinating conversation. I really do appreciate you taking the time to be with us. It's going to be so very helpful. And it's such, you know, it's such a novel piece of information for people. And it it will give parents a lot of hope. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you taking your time here.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub.